As with last week's episode, we wanted to provide an editorial preface to this week's discussion. We recorded this conversation earlier this spring, prior to the tragic attacks that have taken place this summer, which is why these instances are not brought up. In discussing this sensitive topic, our interest is not in finding a singular solution to global terrorism, but in offering an alternate way of conceptualizing the issue. As always, we hope our listeners will provide us with respectful and diverse feedback. And without further ado, here's the episode. Hello, and welcome to Stride and Saunter, episode 104. I'm Kip Clark, and joining me in the studio today, we have a returning guest, Sam Whipple. Thanks for having me back. And it's great to have you back, because today we're continuing a series exploring some of the implications of terrorism, which is very complex and heavy and dark in many ways, but also, I feel, offers a lot of insight in how we behave, how we allow our governments to treat certain citizens or certain groups based on security concerns. And in the fall of our senior year, you were in a class on terrorism from which you received this article that we read today to discuss entitled The Terrorism Delusion, America's Overwrought Response to September 11 by John Mueller and Mark G. Stewart. And the article begins by mentioning Lee Harvey Oswald, JFK's killer, and describes him as a deluded little man with grandiose visions of his own importance, and then goes on to say, on September 11, 2001, a tiny group of deluded men, members of Al-Qaeda, a fringe group of a fringe group with grandiose visions of its own importance, and goes on to describe the attack, managed, again largely because of luck, to pull off a risky, if clever and carefully planned, terrorist act that became by far the most destructive in history. At the extreme, the remnants of this tiny group have even been held to present an existential threat to the very survival of the United States. And the article goes on to make a lot of claims about 9-11 and how we as a nation, as a militaristic country, have responded to that event. And one of the first things I want to hear from you as a New Yorker is what you remember, what your relationship is to this very tragic day, and also what sense you had as a younger individual living in the city at the time of the attack. Well, I was in second grade at the time, and luckily for me, I didn't know anyone who was personally even close to the buildings. My grandmother worked in the area, but was certainly not affected by the actual collapse of the buildings or any of the horrible things that happened. My dad picked me up early from school, and everyone else was being picked up by their parents as well, and he took me to get a cupcake and told me what happened. And at the time, being in second grade, he said some bad men had done a bad thing to a very tall building. That was pretty much it. Since then, of course, being a New Yorker, you hear plenty about the September 11th attacks. And I think for me, it was definitely an event that I didn't understand completely at the time. Since then, I think it has absolutely become a focal point for any discussion of terrorism in the United States or abroad. That comes up in the article quite a bit. The fact that 9-11, as we already understand to some extent, has been a major turning point in the way that we think about and discuss terrorism. 
in part because one of the things that the authors point out is that 9-11 in some sense has obliterated our sense of any terrorism that occurred before that point. It changed the way we think about what a terrorist act is, how it's conducted, and how frequently it can even occur in the first place. And they also mention on page 88 of this article, which we will link to as always in the podcast episode, that the 1970s witnessed 60 to 70 terrorist incidents, mostly bombings, on U.S. soil every year. And later in the article, they also reference the 1958 book by FBI Director J. Edgar Hoover, insisting that the American Communist Party was working day and night to further the communist plot in America which speaks volumes about our nation's history, as I think many nations do, with political disagreements and dissent and very destructive means of protest. So it is curious that we've come to focus on 9-11, which is admittedly a statistical anomaly, as a sign of what we think is to come. But I apologize for the interruption. You were talking about your relationship to the event. Well, I'm glad you bring up the fact that 9-11 is in some ways considered an anomaly. One of the things that this article focuses on particularly is that 9-11 was anomalous in so many ways. First of all, the fact that that many terrorist attacks would occur during the 70s, 80s, and in periods before 9-11, the counterpoint there is what the article focuses on in depth, which is that since 9-11, the rate of incidents of terrorist attacks in the U.S., as well as the kind and nature of the plots that have been conceived, even if they haven't been carried out to term, let's say, have been drastically different. The authors present a list compiled by, I believe it was the Department of Homeland Security, that lays out 50-some cases of terrorist incidents in the United States since. So many of them were conducted by individuals with little or no connection to Al-Qaeda as we understand it, connection being even any understanding of who the members of the organization were. And we should add at this point that this article was written in 2012, so not in the present day during the rise of ISIS and therefore not acknowledging the rise of ISIS as it had not yet happened. That's right, but much like the San Bernardino attacks, similarly in that case, the perpetrators had this vision of being a part of ISIS, even if they didn't necessarily have any direct linkage to the group, be it through communication, through any sort of resources given to them, funding, provision of weapons, anything like that. This was an inspired incident, and that is sort of the character of many of the incidents that we see occurring in the aftermath of 9-11, even if those were not successful. I think it's really interesting that the authors point out this fact that this word delusion comes up again and again, and it plays out on both sides. Delusion is not an illusion. There is something real to it, but there's this misperception, this conflation of fear and the threat that really comes from this, and it happens on both sides. On the one hand, I think you have terrorists or at least people who believe in the, let's say, cause of a group like Al-Qaeda or even ISIS now who want to be a part of it in some way or at least share their sympathies, even if they have no intention of actually carrying an act out themselves. You see in a few cases mentioned in the article that occurred in the aftermath of 9-11 that many of them were people who had expressed a belief, a desire, or even an affiliation or a feeling of affiliation with groups like Al-Qaeda who would not have come close to getting any of the materials or even the infrastructure they needed to actually carry out an attack without the help of, say, an FBI agent, a sleeper, if you will, who also maintains this idea that they want to find something that shows that this threat is out there. 
In the aftermath of 9-11, the FBI, the Department of Homeland Security, and many other groups played up this threat in part because I think they wanted to find something. There was this real fear that there were sleeper cells throughout the United States, that Al-Qaeda was ready to strike, and those estimates of groups were drastically overblown. There was this real fear that just did not pan out in the way that anybody expected it to, or that matched up with any of the estimates that initially came up in that first period of investigation. Which is a detail that is very significant in my mind and something that not many of us question. I also remember being in second grade. I was living in Mercer Island, Washington, very far away from New York. But my parents were up early watching the news and shocked, like other Americans, at what had happened. And I think our response as a country, particularly for older taxpaying citizens, was to trust the government who said that they would prevent future instances of terrorism like this. But as Mueller and Stewart point out, that's the main issue because this was such an anomalous incident, in their opinion, that prevention becomes very excessive in the same way that a meteorite could strike a planet and do absolutely devastating damage to an area or perhaps to the entire globe. But if it's not in a certain area of space where more meteorites are likely to hit, absolutely it was a devastating event, but you have to calculate the likelihood of it actually happening again. And towards the end of the article, the authors calculate that based on the funding we were giving to counterterrorism in 2012, we would need 333 very large attacks that would have otherwise been successful every year to warrant the amount of money that we are spending. And my meteorite analogy is only meant to say that there are certain things, however devastating, that are statistically very unlikely but our human capacity for fear, which has admittedly served us well in certain evolutionary circumstances, I think becomes a very problematic burden in certain instances, which is not to say that terrorism is a good thing or something we should just live with, but that terrorism attacks of this scale are, as Mueller and Stewart say, unlikely to be this successful in the future. And so the American taxpayer has paid for something continuously without really questioning where that money's going or even if it's used well, which in any other circumstances seems ludicrous. You would never pay for something, especially a large sum of money, and not want to know the quality of the product or service that you were paying for. And yet as Americans, I do think we've come to trust the government with this task somewhat unnecessarily, or to the point of excessive spending and protection, which in my opinion seems more reactive than preventative. There have been small instances which have caused organizations like the TSA to respond accordingly, but the fact that they had not planned for these possibilities beforehand doesn't make me feel necessarily safe. And furthermore, in a recent 2015-2016 internal study, The TSA failed on several counts when they were investigated for their security. Federal agents were able to slip through fake detonation devices without being detected. And so at the end of the day, a lot of our counterterrorism efforts to me feel like more of a facade with which to comfort us. And I know that a lot of people might take issue with that, but I think money and rhetoric could be put to better use in our political system. What are your feelings about that? First, I'll say that they bring up this wonderful quote about 9-11 from author Russell Seitz, who in 2004 said, quote, 
9-11 could join the Trojan Horse and Pearl Harbor among stratagems so uniquely surprising that their very success precludes their repetition, and accordingly that Al-Qaeda's best shot may have been exactly that. In a way, 9-11 itself set the bar so high as to almost be insurmountable in a future attack. On the TSA point, I think that's a really important one. We talk about this a little bit in International Terrorism, the class you mentioned I took. The TSA operates under the guise of what we would call security theater. And actually, it offers a kind of promising suggestion for how we can go about responding to terrorism. You're right, I think, that in many cases, these are responsive actions, in part because terrorism is such a massive unknown. The terrorist himself relies on the cover of law, particularly in a democratic society. One of the reasons we see that democracies, like our own, are so vulnerable to terrorist attacks is because the very freedoms that we value, freedoms under the law, freedom against persecution from unlawful search and seizure, freedom of speech even, all of these are ones that you and I, as easily as a would-be terrorist, can operate within and be given the same protections from the government and from law enforcement. The trade-off we make, of course, is that while it allows you and I to conduct our lives as we would, it gives the terrorist free reign to be able to plot under the guise of a lawful citizen. The TSA, though, may not necessarily need to catch every single detonator, because again, we've seen that not all of the people who even conceive of new plans have actually been able or even thought about carrying them out. In part, it's the very fact that we make it so difficult to actually go through doing it in the first place. There's a longer quote later in the article that brings up all of the necessary mental faculties that someone who would really want to make this happen would have to have. The willingness to do it in the first place, the mental strength to carry it all through knowing that their death is impending, the cunningness to evade law enforcement as they procure all the necessary resources, the wherewithal to maintain an average so-called life as they figure it all out. There's a lot that goes into this, and it's more than the average person would have. In so many of the cases brought up in this article, they point out people who, in many ways, were actually somewhat goaded into planning the attacks that ultimately led to their arrest, conviction, and in some cases, imprisonment by FBI authorities. People who, if not for, say, an FBI agent saying, hey, sounds like you'd be interested in blowing something up, they might never have wanted to in the first place. Expressing that desire and that maybe affiliation with a group like Al-Qaeda or ISIS does not nearly translate into action as often as we would think. And yet, we also see that that fear among the American public is sustained. And this has been true since 9-11. Repeated polls in places like Gallup and the Pew Research Center have shown that Americans are consistently worried about this constant looming fear of terrorism. Do you think that's warranted? What do you see coming out of this article that really tells us if that's something we should be afraid of? In terms of keeping the fear alive, I think there are a few systems at play, one of which being societal or communal empathy. As people, we're constantly connected. We interact with one another. And even in an era before the smartphone, neighbors will talk and parents will talk and teachers might even discuss things with their students often seeking emotional approval from those around us. We want to know that we feel the same or similarly as people we know. It's a very natural desire. And I think oftentimes when one person feels fear, 
a common response is for that fear to permeate. And I am critical of that fear, but I'm not necessarily critical of the average individual because fear is a very understandable response, but it leads us to behave in highly irrational ways in certain cases, as I think the article points out. And Mueller and Stewart are not intent on mocking people, in my opinion. They are trying to tell us that we're wasting money and time and certain sentiments that are not productive and I think in many ways are destructive. And so I think the fear is propagated by a lot of our social interactions as well as the media, which has a number of prongs to it, one of which being that because this was such a strange and devastating attack, of course media outlets are going to cover it. And the phenomenon that emerges there is that people continue to see these images and they are burned into the public memory to the point that when you think terrorism, you imagine the most devastating terrorist attack of all time. And therefore, you can't even picture a smaller scale but similarly tragic death of 10 or 20 or 30 individuals, none of which is okay, and I'm not saying that it is, but it is problematic when we associate a general topic with the most extreme version and most unlikely, I would say, according to this article, form of that idea, in this case, of course, terrorism. And so as media outlets and our fellow citizens keep reminding us of 9-11, I think we can't help but be afraid. And similarly, with President Bush's rhetoric of taking action in response, there was the threat of weapons of mass destruction. And on page 99, the authors mention that there is also delusion in the legal expansion of the concept of weapons of mass destruction, which has evolved since the Cold War to include chemical, biological, and radiological weapons, and also that the term was extended even further to include bombs of any kind, grenades, mines, rockets having a propellant charge of more than 4 ounces, missiles having an explosive or incendiary charge of more than one quarter ounce, and projectile spewing weapons that have a barrel with a bore more than half an inch in diameter. They go on to say, It turns out, then, that the shot heard round the world by Revolutionary War muskets was the firing of a weapon of mass destruction, that Francis Scott Key was exultantly, if innocently, witnessing a weapons of mass destruction attack in 1814, etc., etc. And my point there being that the average U.S. citizen, very understandably, does not have time to understand the legal definitions of certain terms, and so, very knowingly, politicians and anyone with political and military influence in our country, as well as in other countries, is able to take advantage of that misunderstanding on the part of the average citizen and motivate actions out of fear interwoven with patriotism. And so for me, what keeps the fear alive is that we will not admit that it is fear, which bothers me on a number of levels because I think it prevents us from actually confronting that emotion, which as I've said before, is natural, we all feel it. But when we call it patriotism, not only is anyone who disagrees not afraid, but your label for them is that they are not patriotic. They might be anti-American, And when you have this very black and white polarized view because of what terrorism has done, if they're not American, maybe they side with the terrorists. And then we get into very combative stances where we're no longer willing to discuss things. And before I go any further, do you agree with that idea? What are your thoughts? You're very right to point out the fact that the way we talk about terrorism is often enmeshed with other concepts of patriotism, nationalism, 
that was most evident, I think, on the day that the raid on Osama bin Laden was finally carried out. You saw videos of people outside the White House in New York City chanting, USA, USA. It was more than the fact that we had not apprehended, but killed an individual who we were aware had orchestrated one of the largest terrorist attacks in U.S. history. The article refers to him as one of the most cartoonish villains of history in the way that we have played up all of these ideas of him as a man and as a mastermind of this terrorist agenda. But in the end, there was this fervor that came from the idea that the USA had triumphed over this foreign entity. I think the fact that we continue to talk about it in those terms gets to this question of how we really think about terrorists versus ourselves. The terrorist, I think, in many ways is seen as the outsider, of course, the enemy, because what does a terrorist really try and accomplish? That was the question that my class and many other classes like it, I'm sure, and even the upper echelons of government still struggle with. What is terrorism? The definition itself has evolved over time. It began with anarchists in the early 17th century trying to overthrow English governments with ragtag groups of people who would bomb stagecoaches as they made their way to and from various places. But that term has evolved and morphed into something that also contains these other elements that feed into the fact that we think of it as this omnipresent threat. And that's exactly, in some ways, what the terrorists want. This idea of global reach that ISIS is now trying to demonstrate by conducting attacks in European countries like Belgium and France, even here in the U.S., this perception of a global reach is essential to a terrorist network. Even if they don't have the operatives in place, this idea that they can be omnipresent, omnipotent, feeds into this idea of the threat being around every corner, that the average citizen could be a terrorist in disguise. And we talk about the terrorist threat and think about it and report on it in these absolute terms. But in the same way, we've done the same thing in the response to it. Never forget this slogan of 9-11. Uh, slogan may be a crass phrase to use here, but it remains true. Even for myself, a New Yorker, never forget. It comes up every year on the anniversary of this terrible tragedy. And of course, we never forget the victims. We never forget the first responders who dedicated their time and energy to rebuilding, to making sure that we could save the few people that we were able to save. But at the same time, we never forget that particular incident. We never forget the perpetrators who carried it out. And never forgetting in some ways allows us to continue to view that threat as constant and imminent. That the next 9-11 could supposedly be just around the corner is a looming challenge to the idea that we as a country still have enemies out there. ISIS may have its own agenda of establishing a caliphate in the Middle East, but meanwhile, our idea of that threat coming here is in some ways so much a part of the idea that we see them as inherently different from us, that there's this value difference, that they hate our freedoms, as the unfortunate trope goes. And I think that what this article really gets at is that from an empirical standpoint, the threat itself does not add up. And there are so many incentives and reasons that even our government would want to suggest that that threat still exists. Whether you want to take it from the perspective of the military-industrial complex, playing into all of these incentives, be it monetary or political, that reinforce the need for anti-terrorist equipment and units 
and policing practices and surveillance, or simply the maintenance of this culture of caution that as the terrorist threat looms, we have to be responsive and vigilant even amongst common citizens. And that is scary if we don't really grapple with the fact that the threat is not nearly as real as it seems. And I'm glad that you bring up what I might call a mantra of sorts of never forget 9-11 because I have very similar feelings and I think the logical next step or conclusion that this article leads to is a close examination of why we continue to repeat this phrase. And it is absolutely done, in my perception, out of good intention. People want to show sympathy for the victims and solidarity with our nation and with New York as a city and a symbol of our country. But in any other example of a tragic instance, especially on a personal level, you would never tell the victim of a trauma to never forget. That's a ridiculous phrase in that context. And I personally feel that the rhetoric surrounding 9-11 and saying that we should never forget it has led us to not only remember the victims and, as you said, the first responders, those who served, those who lost their lives in defense of innocent people, but also, as we've said throughout this conversation, an anomaly and something that is not likely to happen again and happened, as the authors said, because of luck and some clever planning and an opportune moment. And so in never forgetting, we don't allow ourselves as a country, as a political body, as a military body, to move past something that will not likely happen again, and yet the systems that we have put into place to respond to it act as though it will. And I'm sure that might sound to some that I'm saying we shouldn't think about 9-11, but I think the victims can be mourned and remembered without an unnecessary and I think unhealthy fixation on the event itself as a tragic, traumatic, and devastating moment in U.S. history. And I've often felt that terrorism is not about the immediate casualties and deaths at the scene of a bombing or an attack, but about the country that has been attacked and the media that will propagate a certain message. And I'm not saying that the terrorists do not intend to cause physical and fatal harm, but I do think a big key to terrorism, as we've alluded to, is a message that propagates very readily through people, often through media, but as I'd mentioned before, social contact, and this conversational fear that is stirred up, again, in a very understandable way, between and among individuals. And so I feel like in many ways, including the excessive budgets and precautions that do not always function as we would hope they do and do not seem to be properly targeted, and in terms of our emotional response, terrorism as a concept has gained a substantial victory because we've responded to it not only with fear, but a lingering fear, more than a decade long at this point, for an event that has not been nearly repeated on the same scale. And yet, as both Mueller and Stewart mention, as an example, public fear of flying has not decreased since the time of the attacks. And in fact, I believe around 2010, a public poll suggested that people were more fearful of flying over time, which says a lot about our emotional perceptions as people. And I'm no psychologist nor political expert, but I think on some level we've allowed fear to permeate, which I'll admit is a very hard line to take. Do you have any response to that? 
I don't think it's such a hard line. I think you're quite right that one of the ways that that fear also spreads is the fact that there is this real incentive to report on incidences of terrorism as monumental events, whether they succeed or they fail, because there are two sides to that coin. On the one hand, take an incident that failed. One of the most prominent and in some ways actually funny is the underwear bomber who put some sort of explosive device in his underwear, made it onto a plane, but was captured. Now, on the one hand, I'd say a government like the U.S. has a real incentive to play up the foiled plot to show that the apparatus that's been put in place has been successful in preventing an attack. But on the other hand, in some ways, the foiled plot, I think, can amplify the fear that we already have about the next impending attack. So in a way, it's a catch-22, because if an attack succeeds, fear will spread. But if an attack is foiled, what people will take away from any kind of report is that there was an attempted attack and therefore fear will spread. Absolutely. And I think it reinforces this notion that there are more agents or sleeper cells out there waiting to plan the next one. The CIA often talks about these kinds of attacks as being just around the corner. Former CIA director Michael Hayden had this phrase he liked to use to describe the culture of intelligence and surveillance and information gathering in the CIA in the aftermath of 9-11, which was that every day was September 10th. There was always this feeling that the work done on any given day would be instrumental in either preventing or missing the next potential September 11th level event. This is something that goes into the culture of these information gathering agencies and the ones that are tasked with preventing attacks, whether they exist or not. Part of the problem of both the foiled and the successful attack, I think, is that either one suggests the threat is real. Whether or not those attacks actually succeed, in most cases has to do with who the individuals themselves are, their connections to any affiliated group, and in most cases, in most of the cases we see in this article, in the incidents that are actually reported in the aftermath of 9-11, almost none of them have any direct affiliation with a terrorist network of any kind. The estimates of the size of these networks in the first place, which are hardly present in the U.S., are dramatically overstated. Besides the people who would pick, say, the Brooklyn Bridge because it seems like an iconic place to hit, most of these targets are chosen out of convenience. You had at least one or two individuals who picked a nearby shopping mall because it was within 20 miles of their house. Some of these cases are even almost comically tragic. There was a story of an individual who a neo-Nazi, I believe, who was attempting to blow up a synagogue, got on the wrong subway car going the wrong direction in Norway and blew up a mosque instead. Some of these individuals simply have no other interest than self-congratulation, than attention, because that's so much of what terrorism brings, too. The way that news outlets have an incentive to cover it because it seems to carry this political agenda that comes with this spectacle of loss of life of damage, of destruction, in its worst cases, that amplifies so much of what we fear about terrorism. And I would say as a symbolic weapon often associated with terrorism, we think about the bomb. Any explosive device which could devastate, kill, and seriously injure people. But a lot of these cases point out that if one doesn't have the proper training and the knowledge of how to actually detonate a bomb, 
Damage will certainly be done, but not nearly on the scale intended by the designs that would-be terrorists are following, and the fact that very few of them receive the training that we believe they do speaks to our fear of this looming, omnipresent, and highly capable enemy. And of course, the nuclear bomb, one of the most devastating weapons known to humanity, is one that some fear would fall into the hands of terrorists. But Mueller and Stewart note that the process of making a bomb would require trusting corrupted foreign collaborators and other criminals, obtaining and transporting highly guarded material, setting up a machine shop staffed with top scientists and technicians, and rolling the heavy, cumbersome, and untested finished product into position to be detonated by a skilled crew, all while attracting no attention from outsiders. Which is not to say that a nuclear bomb could not be constructed by terrorists, but that they would have so many hoops to jump through that at some point they would be noticed because, again, the main component in the bomb being nuclear material is so heavily monitored in our world today it's highly unlikely that they would succeed were they to pursue that path. You're definitely right. And in many cases, I think we also give terrorists a lot more credit than they deserve. Mueller and Stewart in particular point out the fact that this fear of Al-Qaeda acquiring a nuclear weapon suggests, and I'm going to paraphrase the quote here, that the people who orchestrated an attack that relied primarily on the brute force of hijacking an airplane simply making their way onto a means of public transportation and holding a gun to the head of one of the people operating the airplane, translates somehow to the sophistication and level of technical expertise, of coordination, of management, of planning that goes into acquiring something like a nuclear weapon. Those two operations are just on two different levels, and the gap in sophistication between them is is really quite massive. And that's one of the reasons they talk about 9-11 as being this watershed moment in terrorism, because it was the only chance they seem to have been able to take to carry out this spectacle that probably could never happen again in the way that we've seen. And I know that this has been a longer conversation of ours, but before we close this episode, what would you like the audience to think about after listening to this discussion? I'm glad you asked. I have a couple of thoughts. One is, as we continue to think about the issues of terrorism, and in particular the way that our government reacts to them and operates under the assumptions of a looming terrorist threat, we owe it to ourselves as much as to the billions of Muslims around the world who have united against the threat of what your average Republican presidential candidate would call radical Islamic terrorism. We owe it to ourselves as well as to them to pay attention to the ways that our government responds, both in terms of domestic and foreign efforts. The other thing I would say is that if there's anything in this article that comes out in terms of the way that the terrorist threat is perceived in the general public, it means a lot when the next one happens. ISIS has proven themselves to be capable of carrying out attacks of significant scale, both in France, in Belgium, here in the U.S., And frankly, as the 2016 presidential election looms, there's a lot that can come out in terms of fear, in terms of wanting to see a strong reaction. If another terrorist attack were to occur before November 2016, I think it's very likely that an event like that could propel a candidate like Donald Trump into the White House 
merely on the basis of wanting to see a strong executive response to that kind of attack. I think particularly now, it's very important to be critical of what we see happening, of what's being reported, of the ways that we're responding, and of the ways that we choose to deal with it both ourselves, interpersonally, as a society, and as a government, as a strong force in the world economically, politically, and militarily. I absolutely agree. And I would really love to know what listeners think, especially New Yorkers and, of course, other Americans, about what we've discussed regarding the phrase, never forget 9-11. Whether you agree or not, do you see where we're coming from or do you see it differently, which we would very much like to know. I would also like to know what people think about what we've described as a meshing of patriotism and nationalism with the fear that terrorism instills. Do you think that it complicates our dialogue and our ability to separate these concepts from one another? And as a final point, of course, as always, to every listener, whether you are American or international, what do you think about the amount of money spent by the U.S. government in counterterrorism efforts, especially, as we hope you will read it, after considering the Stewart and Mueller article? And Sam, I'd like to thank you very much for coming on and discussing this today. Absolutely. Thanks for having me back. But as ever, and especially with very heavy topics like this, we want this to be a conversation among, not simply a conversation between. So if you have any thoughts, feedback, opinions of any kind, please reach out to us. We would love to hear from you and to have you join the conversation. You can connect with us via Twitter or Facebook, where if you like our page, you'll receive weekly updates when we post new episodes. You can also email us via strideandsaunter at gmail.com. And if you enjoyed this episode, consider subscribing to as well as reviewing the show and sharing it with someone you think might enjoy it or get something out of it. And as always, we thank you very much for listening. And from thought to word and voice to ear, this is Kip Clark signing off.